Hi, hey, and welcome to a special episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I am actually uh, joining Swan Sona on his YouTube channel, Intellectual Catholicism, to talk about some research that I've been doing for the last number of years on the Monopiscopate and St. Jerome's understanding of the Monopiscopate. The Monopiscopate is the idea that in the early church there was one bishop presiding over one church or one city or one area, one diocese. Not a plurality of bishops, not a bunch of bishops, kind of a community, a a collective in the early church, but actually very early on, I will argue, this establishment was was established (laughs) that one bishop was in charge of a, a city. Now, this is important for a lot of reasons, and and least of all because as a Protestant Christian, I didn't have a bishop in my church. I had a pastor, part of a denomination. And as I do research like this, finding uh, St. Jerome in the early, you know, an early church father in the early uh, stages of the church saying, look, the, the very infant church already had one bishop in charge of one diocese, in charge of one city, in charge of one church. And that model carried on up till today in the Catholic Church. That, that for a Protestant, for an evangelical, would make me pause and have to really deeply consider my understanding of my own church. Okay, if this was an apostolic tradition, if the apostles established this idea of one bishop in charge of one church, and that passed down through succession, when did that change and why? Becomes a really important question to me as a Protestant. So this episode is, is different than normal, which is why I'm releasing it as a bonus episode, not a regular episode, because it's a bit more uh, nitty-gritty. It's in one very granular <laughs> topic, which for me is greatly interesting. What did St. Jerome think about the monarchical episcopate? <laughs> but not everyone's cup of tea. So listener beware, we get into the weeds a little bit, but oh, they're, they're, they're wonderful weeds. And this research is, is so fascinating and fun. I've loved doing it, and, and Swam's happy for me to come on his channel and share it, and share it with you guys. So without any further ado, please listen and enjoy. Today, I am here with Keith Little, the cordial Catholic himself, and today we're here to talk about Jerome and the Mana Episcopacy. And I guess before we get into Keith's uh, short presentation, I'll just kind of articulate why I think this is important, and then maybe Keith can add a few things, uh, and he'll also introduce himself. I, I think this is the first time I've had you on the channel, actually. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Normally, I'm more comfortable in your chair, normally, <laughs> bringing on guests, so this is uh-huh. different from me. I love it, Swan. Yes, because I've been on the Cordial Catholic before, and so yeah. this is a nice kind of turning of the tables. Uh, but regarding Jerome, people will often use Jerome as evidence against the Catholic distinction between uh, the hierarchy of bishop, presbyter, and deacon. And what they're going to say is, well, yeah, so Jerome does make the, it's either the presbyter or the bishop higher than the deacon. I think it's the presbyter. Uh, he does make the presbyter higher than the deacon, but he does so at the price of making the presbyter equal to the bishop. And so that's supposed to show then that there isn't like this three-tiered Catholic system, but rather it's two-tiered, just as you apparently read in, you know, books like Titus, where it talks about the qualifications of bishop and deacon. It doesn't mention presbyter as a separate office, and many people will insist that bishop and presbyter were interchangeable. Uh, So when people do that, I'm going to say, talk about the rest of, of what Jerome says, 
because that's what Keith is getting into today on adding in more details on when people say that objection. Look at what else Jerome says, though, about the episcopacy. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So, Keith, it is great to have you on. If you have anything to add to that, please let me know. But, of course, feel free to introduce yourself and your channel. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm Keith Little. Uh, I am host of the Cordial Catholic podcast for the last four years or so. Uh, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. Uh, by way, a large part of reading my way into the church uh, through the church fathers. So the church fathers are near and dear to, to my heart and a, a favorite of mine, uh, a, a hobbyist researcher, I think I'd say, for in the, with the church fathers. Uh, I, uh, I live in Sarnia, Ontario, about 45 minutes up the river from Detroit, Michigan across the border mm. we have three kids and uh actually a fourth on the way my wife my wife's due date is today actually swan so <laughs> no signs of labor yet, yet. so uh -huh. hopefully we'll get through this and put a fourth on the way shortly and uh praise god yeah so mm -hmm. um i've had you on my show a bunch of times swan that's what i do normally is have people on the show to talk about their their uh, catholic conversion talk about parts of the catholic faith unpack those things for a largely kind of protestant uh, non-catholic christian audience so that's my that's my bread mm -hmm. and butter uh but i love i love patristics love the early church and and so this was something i love to dig into and i agree with you totally in the importance of of drome on, on that i also say too that what i uncovered and i'll go into this more in a in a little bit was that Jerome was also used by many Protestant scholars and defended against by Catholic scholars uh, to to show that the the idea of the monopiscopate, the monarchical mm -hmm. episcopacy, actually was a later development. So right. Jerome was Jerome was that that's where I kind of first encountered Jerome and dug into this was kind of a, a hand grenade to launch into the debate to say, well, look, Jerome saw this as a, a development, so it couldn't be apostolic couldn't be from the earliest times this developed uh, in the same way that that people would use him to argue that the you know the presbyter the 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 episcopate um the dacanate developed in in similar ways was also used to show that the, the idea of one bishop for one city for one one church area also mm -hmm. developed so that was for me an, uh, where this research began and also an important thing to dig into here because as i, I hope you'll see this is quite, uh, uh, there's a lot of pushback, ways to push back against that using mm -hmm. Jerome's own words here. So, yeah. And just very quickly, um, you know, what, as Keith talked about what the mana episcopacy is, it's just simply the view that you have kind of one bishop at the top, maybe above other bishops in an area, uh, rather than having, let's say how, for example, let's say in, in a Protestant Baptist church today, you could have in multiple, let's say churches, uh, or let's say, yeah, multiple churches, each of them have like one pastor at the top. And that's really the structure of the early church, not this mana episcopate, this one pastor who's above the rest of the pastors. No, that's a later invention. Uh, and you're going to show that that really isn't the case, that it's not a later invention, that it does go back to earlier times. Uh, and also I want to just congratulate Keith on, this is the research that he did. So Keith kind of reached out to me and told me about these things that he had found and it ended up kind of fitting like a hand in a glove with some of my own research. And so after Keith gives his presentation, I'll talk a little bit about just my thoughts on it uh, and the relevance of this actually for the debates on, you know, things like uh, whether or not there was a mana episcopate in the early church of Rome, because that actually is very relevant here, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I want to kind of begin my 
presentation by just mentioning the the fact that first of all, you know, my my attempt here. So my the the my podcast is the cordial Catholics one, and one thing that I uh, I always say it's an aspirational title. So one thing I aspire to in how I share the faith, how I defend the faith, how I uh, d- debate or dialogue with other. Uh, apologists, uh, the Protestants, Catholics, non-Catholics, uh, non-Christians, is I hope in a cordial way. So I hope that as I present this research, I'm hoping that I, it's presented in, in a cordial way, and I want to remain teachable and humble in bringing this forward. So I don't want to be uh, the guy who just drops this bomb and, and refuses to, to read or respond to any kind of criticism. Hopefully, I, I can... I can be cordial and teachable and humble as I as I present this, and with any kind of pushback, I'm I'm hoping that I can let my ego go, <laughs> and and embrace any kind of feedback that comes. And and really, because one of the things we don't we don't grow or learn uh, in our theology, in our understanding of Christian history, uh, history of the church, in our in our walk with Christ, if we're not humble and teachable. So I'm hoping to I, I'm aiming for that goal. In presenting this, I think it's good research methodology. I think my conclusions are strong, but I want to say first of all that that this is, I hope, coming across in a humble and, and teachable way. Um, I want to say two two things to start with, Swan, and, and the first is that I think there are. So you've already outlined for us what the monopiscopacy is, right? The idea that there's a bishop on on top, that that bishops, the churches weren't governed in the early church. Um, for for very long by a plurality of bishops, but that very early on, I'm going to argue, uh, through Jerome, that that one bishop was appointed as the head of that that church, that diocese, that church area, that city. There was one bishop in charge. We call that the monopiscopacy. Uh, so I, I want to say first of all that I think there are actually better sources than Jerome. I'll explain why in a minute how I kind of fell into using Jerome to defend this, but I think there are actually better sources than uh, than Jerome to defend this. Um, there are uh, I stumbled into using Jerome, but there are actually better sources th- than Jerome to defend this. And I have a couple in my pocket for the end if we get get to that point, uh, uh, Swan. The second thing is uh, in the Catholic view of things, a single church father doesn't equal the magisterium, right? So we can t- we can take what Jerome says or any church father what they say, right? And they have an importance in how things uh, things developed and and unfolded in the history of the Catholic Church. But we don't, as Catholics, take one single church father and pin all of our beliefs or understandings on a single church father, right? You'll see often in, in, in criticisms of Catholicism, I think especially, and surely Catholics do this too, right? Finding a church father who kind of agrees with your view or has one certain view and, you know, pinning things on them and saying, look, well, well Jerome said this, right? So even here, yes, Jerome says this, but just one church father isn't what the Catholic Church's beliefs or understanding is based on. So I want to get that kind of out of the way uh, in the beginning. Those, those two things, right? There are better sources, I think, than Jerome. Uh, I will use Jerome here. And Jerome does not make the, the magisterium, our full understanding of, of what we understand as Catholics, based on one single church father. So there are two sources of evidence here that I want to draw on for this, uh, for this presentation on uh, places where Jerome talks about the monopiscopacy. And the first is in his commentary on Titus, and the second is what's called Letter 146, uh, Two Evangelists, I think it is. And I want to kind of b- begin by uh, how I kind of stumble into this, so on, because it's a bit of a detective mystery, a bit of a murder mystery almost, a, a, you know, a British detective cozy, if you will. There, There's this quote floating around, and I'll put it on the screen here, uh, 
that purports to be from Jerome, from his commentary on Titus, which is used, I've seen used by a number of different Protestant sources. I've seen Catholics uh, respond to this as if it were a legitimate quote. I've actually even seen it being quoted in in dissertations from different Protestant seminaries uh, when you look for this quote. But what I found, Swan, when I, when I began to actually dig into this quote, because what happens when you... I'll put it this way. I think if you're if you're interested in patristics and the early church fathers, and you're you're a, you like researching these things, you're a good researcher. The first thing that a lot of us do uh, when we come across a, a you know a, a, a Protestant apologist or a theologian or, or or somebody using a quote, you take that quote, you copy it, and you put it into Google. And oftentimes what you do is you find that quote in context. And it's very important to read these quotes in context. It'll be on New Advent or one of these patristic sources of, of, of early church father writings. And you can read that quote in context. Well, I saw this quote cropping up in different places from Protestant sources, Catholics kind of defending against this quote. And I read this quote and it piqued my interest because it, it seems like this quote seems to frame it as if Jerome saw the monopiscopate as a later development. This is something that, that developed. It wasn't started by the apostles or by Christ, but developed some other time. And of course, that was used uh, in the sources I found it as a criticism against the monopiscopate being something of apostolic origin. Right? If Here's Jerome in this quote showing that he thinks this developed later. Therefore, here's some strong evidence that the monopiscopate wasn't actually originating in apostolic times. So I was curious where this quote came from, how how it was framed, the context, because this for me was an interesting topic, the monopiscopate, and, and I wanted to know more about this. So I'll read the I'll read the quotation for people who don't have it up or for, for listeners, and, and here it goes. This is the quotation, uh, as it was found in many different places. So it says this: "The presbyter is the same as the bishop, and before parties have been raised up in religion by the provocations of Satan, the churches were governed by the senate of the presbyters." But as each one sought to appropriate to himself those whom he had baptized, instead of letting them, leading them to Christ, it was appointed that one of the presbyters, elected by his colleagues, should be set over all the others, and have chief supervision over the general well-being of the community. Now, dot, 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 little ellipses here. Without doubt, it is the duty of the presbyters to bear in mind that by the discipleship of the church, they are subordinated to him who has been given them as their head. But it is fitting that the bishops on their side do not forget that if they are set over the presbyters, it is a result of tradition and not by the fact of a particular institution by the Lord. Okay, so this quote, it was interesting. I thought, okay, so it sounds like Jerome is suggesting that, yes, this was, this was the case, that a, a bishop was elected by presbyters to be over them, to be kind of the, the chief bishop. But he, he's coming down pretty strong that it was a later development and doesn't really tell us when or, or, or what context and really doubles down, like, don't forget, bishops, this was a, this was a development. This isn't, doesn't come from the Lord, right? So this was used in, in places that I saw it, right, to defend the idea that this was a development in the early church, and not how things were originally intended, right? It wasn't intended to be a single bishop over the others. It was intended to be kind of a plurality of presbyters, of bishops, governing these local churches, right? So I I put this into Google, this, this quotation, and what I found was this quotation verbatim in a bunch of different places, but not in any early 
patristic sources. So the first place I found it was this, this blog here, and I noticed that it linked back to Mike Kruger, who's of course a Protestant theologian. I think he's at Reformed Theological Seminary right now, I believe he's, is where he's at. Uh, so I Google this, I find this, this blog, and I, find, and I find it linking back to, uh, to Michael Kruger's work. And so I link back to his page, and here's the same quotation here. Now, I, I began to notice what struck me first of all was kind of strange is that it's the exact same quotation with the exact same kind of ellipses here, the exact same kind of place where this quote is, is truncated. So I'm, I'm again looking for the original source here. And so I trace this back. This is 2015, where he, he uses this quotation. Now, this is my, my looking around the internet. This was the earliest place I could find this quotation. All the other sources that I could find were later sources either using this quotation or critiquing it by linking back to this quotation. And actually, Kruger uses this also in a book of his, published in 2018, that same, that same source, that same exact quotation, truncated in the middle there. And again, in all these places, linking it back or, or citing it as coming from uh, Jerome's commentary on Titus 1.7. That's important too, right? 1.7. So I thought, okay, I can't find this online. All, all I'm finding is, even, even just taking the first part of this quote, all I'm finding everywhere is, is this, this same quote, right? In a few dissertations, in Catholic articles responding to this, in Protestants using this, you know, on, on YouTube, in, in written kind of commentary, written kind of uh, essays and blog posts, articles, is this quotation. So I was getting more and more curious, Swan. So of course, I, I looked up for, and I found the, the only English translation of, of Jerome's commentary on Titus. Not available online. I bought a book from a guy called Thomas Scheck, who translated this, uh, the Jerome's commentary. And I couldn't find this passage anywhere. And the, myst- the mystery deepened. And I looked, and I actually read the entire commentary, and I, I found it in 1 Titus 1.5. So this quotation that was being used all over the place online, actually was, uh, first of all, I realized, a misattribution. So the quotation wasn't actually from Jerome's commentary on Titus from his, his on 1.7, it was on, uh, it was on, sorry, on 1.5, it was on 1, uh, I'm getting this backwards now, it's cited as 1, as 1.7. It was actually in his section on, his commentary on Titus on verses 1.5, is where, where it was. So it was mislabeled, everywhere I found it, right? Um, so the same truncated, mislabeled quote was appearing everywhere, right? The same kind of cutting off in the middle, kind of truncated, but I found it. I found it in, in Sheck's translation of Jerome's commentary in Titus 1.5. And the funny, the odd thing is, it, it looks like this. So you'll see on the slide here, it, it begins on one page, and what struck me again as strange is, is the, the truncation, if you will, is almost a page in total. So you'll see I have it here highlighted in the slide. It begins on, on one page. There, there is, if you remember that quotation on, online that I was finding, there's that dot, 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 the ellipses. Well, the ellipses hides almost a full page, which is interesting to begin with. And what I realized was not only was, the, was that quotation you know, mislabeled, the ellipses kind of hit a whole page of text, but it was missing some key information, some really key information. So I'll I'll read up. I'll read here the uh, the. I just got to bring up my screen so I can see it a bit a bit larger here. But I will read 
what it says um, from uh, Thomas Sheck's translation. So this is the same, this is Titus, this is Jerome's commentary on Titus 1.5, right? This is what was mislabeled as 1.7. And you'll see there, there are some key things that I think are missing, and it's pretty interesting, and it really, uh, in my view, changes the meaning of this text quite, quite fundamentally. So Jerome writes, It is therefore the very same priest who is bishop, and before there existed men who were who are slanderers by instinct, before factions in the religion, and before it was said to the people, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, the churches were governed by a common council of the priests. But after each one began to think that those whom he had baptized were his own and not Christ's, it was decreed for the whole world that one of the priests should be elected to preside over the others, to whom the entire care of the church should pertain, and the seeds of schism would be removed." Now, here's where the dot, dot, dot comes in, in the quotation from, uh, from Kruger and others. We skip almost a whole page of text here. Therefore, just as the priests know that by the custom of the church they are subject to the one who was previously appointed over them, so the bishops know that they, more by custom than by the truth of the Lord's arrangement, are greater than priests. So, what, what struck me here, uh, first of all, was that this is kind of quite different. Right? The second translation uh, is missing a key component, and that component uh, that was missing from the first translation, the first quote that Kruger used, that other apologists and theologians have used, that dissertations that I found from Protestant seminarians were using, misses the component that tells us when the transition, or sorry, when this tradition actually began, right? which, which, which is found in the actual translation that that, uh, that Sheck provides for us. So I had to know was was this you know which of these is 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 the right quotation is the right say translation you know one has a key marker of when this happened uh and the mention that it was decreed for the whole world which is also we'll get back to and is pretty interesting the other is kind of missing that distinction altogether kind of that's kind of buried in 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 the text so i went to the latin and the latin translation i I don't know if you can see that there on the screen, Swan, but it's pretty clear that the Latin includes that section there on the bottom kind of corner there, which which quotes from the the passage from First Corinthians, which is included in Sheck's translation, and you know that that marker of time of when this happened, when this transition happened, when this tradition starts, that was found in Sheck's translation wasn't found in the other quotations from Kruger and others. So, of course, I, I had to know, I had to know, was it possible, you know, where did this first quote come from, right? Because this quotation swan that was used to show that Jerome saw this as a development, kind of a, uh, an unknown when it happened, but a development, this quotation is missing a key part that says, A, it was a development that happened here at a key part, right? And, and B, for the whole world. Right, those two important things were missing from the quotation that was used by Kruger and others. So I, I got in touch with Thomas Scheck, who is the only English language translator of the commentary uh, on Titus from Jerome. And I asked him, I showed him this quote, and I said, I said, I said, where do you imagine this could possibly come from? Were there other manuscripts that were missing this part? Were there, were there other translations? You know, how, how is this in your translation? and not in other translations that are being used and thrown around on the internet. Because this is a pretty crucial distinction, this part that's missing from others. 
His his best guess. Well, first of all, he said no. There are not conflicting manuscripts of this commentary. There are, it's not there's a bunch of floating around, and he chose one and translated it. And there are others that also could be translated. That doesn't. That's not the case. He said they're not conflicting different manuscripts that exist. Uh, so that was that was ruled out. He said his best guess, Swan, was that, and he said that you know during the Reformation there were a number of different kind of translations and and booklets of church fathers which were intentionally he said, kind of created using misleading quotations to kind of uh, shore up support for different Protestant ideas. In other words, different Protestant groups kind of created different uh, intentional mistranslations of the church fathers to kind of prove their own kind of point. So his best guess is that maybe uh, by accident, Michael Kruger, and I've emailed Kruger about this and didn't hear back from him, so I want to be open and transparent with that, Maybe he by accident used one of these sources of a mistranslation of Jerome and then shared that as if it came from the you know original original source material. Right? Because everywhere I found this, it's sourced as coming from mistakenly, you know, first, you know, t- Titus 1-7. Everywhere. It's actually Titus 1-5. And it's actually a, you know a truncated, kind of misquoted, almost fictitious verse version of what Jerome actually said. So again, in the Latin, it's there. Uh, in, you know, according to Sheck, there's no way this could possibly be mistaken. This is just a false, uh, you know, a fictitious translation uh, of Jerome. And so what this quotation tells us, right, in its proper, in, in its proper <laughs> version, Swan, right, Jerome's telling us a few things. He's telling us that, uh, that priests, you know, originally churches governed in, in kind of a common council, right? He's admitting that. This is what he, this is what he, he admits to. Um, and bishops were elected by, by priests. He tells us, though, that once people began factioning, and he tells us, right, he quotes from, people recognize this, I think, he quotes from 1 Corinthians 1.12, right? Some say, some claim cling to Apollo, some cling to Paul, right? He says that when this began to happen, and he quotes, he quotes Paul's words, the monoepiscopate was established for the whole world to prevent those schisms, right? In other words, after people began thinking that they were, I'm Paul's, I'm Apollos, I, you know, Apollos, I'm Peter's, uh, it, was, it was decreed for the whole world that, that churches should be governed by, by a single bishop, a single bishop in charge. And that's where this began, so Jerome is, Jerome is saying that's when it started. Yes, this was a later development, but development happened when these things happened. And of course, we know, we know because he's quoting 1 Corinthians, we know when 1 Corinthians was written, right? So we know that, our, that our pro, you know, apostles uh, were still alive when this factioning was happening, right? They couldn't have, uh, you know, because Paul's, Paul's writing about this. He's writing about this contemporary as, as it's happening. And Jerome's saying, you know, when Paul wrote about that, that's when the monoepiscopate started, when Paul wrote these things. Right? And we know from a consensus of scholarship that around AD 50 was when 1 Corinthians was written. So presumably even, you know, before that, shortly before that, Paul saw this happening and wrote that. And Jerome is saying that this is when the monopiscopacy started. And not only that, but it was, it was decreed for the whole world that churches should be governed like this, right? So who can decree these? Well, you know, the, the apostles can, 
can decree these. Bishops can decree these. That's an authoritative thing to, to decree things. He isn't just saying that this developed in some time, uh, right, as the original quotation seems to suggest. He's saying this developed at this time, right, uh, for the whole world. This was the style of, of governance for the church. So I think what's interesting here, Swan, is that Jerome gives us really almost an exact date of when this began, right? We can concede, yeah, this developed, but it developed almost immediately, right? Like in the lifetime of Paul and Apollos, like when they were alive and, and Paul could write these things, that's when, that's when they decided, okay, we have, to, we have to govern our churches like this, right? With one bishop in charge. So, and, and the whole world should also do this. And it was decreed uh, in that way, right? So that's my first piece of evidence, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to weigh in there. there there's one more piece that I think is right. also pretty interesting and, and leads into that decreeing for the whole world piece there. But uh, mm-hmm. that's the first piece. Um, I'm sorry for the murder mystery in the front there, but it's kind of interesting because I think for me, Swan, what piqued my interest was finding this quote and then realizing that this quote that was being used to kind of defend the idea that the monophysitivacy developed, right, was was missing, and it seems intentionally so. Now, not yeah. not 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 purposely. I don't think that Kruger or others were intentionally misleading people, and that's not my conclusion, right? I think that this that that whatever he picked that up, I think he assumed was a primary source. I think it was unfortunately one of these kind of maybe mischaracterizations or kind of fictitious quotes that was that came mm-hmm. about uh, during the Reformation. H- however, it came about the quotation that was being used really to to criticize or to lend strength to the idea that the monophysitivacy developed was missing those two key pieces, right? The, the, mm. the piece that showed that, yeah, it developed, but here's when it began. Here's exactly when it started, and it's very early on, and the fact that it was decreed for the whole world to govern churches like these, right? So those two key pieces of information were missing from the quote that is, is everywhere out there on the internet and being used to, to criticize the monopiscopacy. That same quote, actually, the real version right, right. says quite differently and gives and gives really strong evidence for when mm. this started and the context and the importance of this for for the whole world right so i don't know if you want to jump in there with anything or, or we can keep going it's up to you it's up to you yeah so uh I, I did want to make a point really quick and then make another point so just to go back really quick through your presentation um or actually, let's see here. There's a slide where it mentions that, uh, here we go, uh, on the left side, page 289, commentary on Titus, um, was it Sheck's translation? Yeah, Thomas Sheck. So uh, I think the reason why some people have labeled this section, which if you go to 288, it shows you that this is 1.5b yeah. of Titus, right? Not one point, uh, not one seven. Yeah. Not one seven. No, it's one five. Right. Yeah. But I think if you look at footnote 73, you know, Jerome does mention Titus one seven. And I think whoever kind of said that this was about Titus one seven, just looked at that part maybe and saw that the preceding verse that Jerome had mentioned was one seven and then said, Oh, well, this is then Jerome talking about, or this is Jerome's commentary on Titus one seven. And it's like, well, he does cite the verse but it, that's not the right section. Yeah. You know, so it, it, if people understand that th- this section is 1.5b yeah. in the commentary on Titus, 
That's what he's focusing on, uh, Jerome. But he does mention one seven in passing, but that's not what that's not the sec the proper citation for the section. Uh, so me being kind of <laughs> going back into yeah. to ac- to academics and you know uh, university. Uh, yeah, th- if I did this, this would be considered a mistake yeah. on how to properly cite the commentary. Yeah. So, I mean, you're exactly right that the wrong section is being cited, even though the preceding verse under section 15B is Titus 1-7. Uh, you know, Jerome does mention that in passing. Yeah. So that yeah. might be an explanation why, and it's not necessarily malicious or anything like that, but it is, as you said, a miscitation. It is incorrect. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing you mentioned was that this was decreed for the entire world, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, so this language of being decreed for the entire world, a decreed by the apostles, this is language you find in Clement, First Clement. Uh, you know, my favorite passage, uh, First Clement chapter, was it 44 verses 1 to 3? So to our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that strife would arise over the office of bishop. And therefore, having received, you know, this foreknowledge on what was to come, they afterwards added a codicil or a rule or a decree to the effect of these men died, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. So in first Clement chapter 44 and, you know, first Clement is dated to either 96 to 99 AD. Although I take the pre 70 date uh, of first Clement, you see already very early evidence that the apostles outside of the canonical scriptures were making these universal decrees on the structure and order of the church. And so it makes total sense then that you have Jerome here saying something, and then you have Clement dovetailing what he's saying, uh, you know, almost what, uh, 300 or something years earlier than Jerome. So it's just like, wow, that's, you know, people talk about undesigned coincidences. There's an undesigned coincidence. (laughs) The other thing too, uh, Keith, is that, you know, there's that part where it talks about how, uh, Jerome's kind of telling the bishops to remember that this is by tradition and not by a particular institution of the Lord. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, when you, when you read that without the ellip, without what's included, what's without what's left out in the ellipses, right. Uh, when you just, you know, have what's there on the quote, it looks like what Jerome's saying is, Oh, this is just a tradition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just a tradition of men. Yeah. Uh, it's just something that we did. It's a custom, right? And it's like, well, no, it's a tradition that was decreed by the apostles for the entire world. Yeah. So that puts things in a different perspective. So, you know, it might not be a particular institution explicitly from the lips and the mouth of Christ, but it was a universal decree of the apostles. Yeah. Just as in First Clement chapter 44, you know, it says, so too our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that strife would arise over the office of bishop. So Jesus forewarned the apostles, there's going to be strife over the office of bishop. And so what did the apostles do? Well, then they made the decree that if these men should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministries. It's almost the same pattern as what is going on in First Clement. But I know that you want to say something, Keith, and so let me yeah, give you well, the floor. To your, to your point, like when you, when you, and I put the slide back up here on the screen here, when you bury that last bit, I mean, in the original, in the original quotation or misquotation, right, it really does make it seem like this is a development. We don't know when it developed. It developed, developed at some point. And, and again, you know, he doubles down at the end there that, you know, just so you know, this is a development, not, not from the Lord, right? Mm. But when you read that in the context, well, first of all, what's hidden in the ellipses is Jerome talking about, listen, bishops, behave yourself. Here's how you should act. Here's how you should behave. He then comes around to say, 
you know, that, that part of this wasn't from the Lord. Mm. I think to, to really say to these bishops, look, guys, you behave yourselves because this wasn't what Christ intended. The apostles established this because there was schism. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. here's the situation. This wasn't from the start. This was to remedy schism. We have to we have to do this. So you better behave yourselves because it could you know who knows what's next, right? Or this mm-hmm. is this is kind of uh, you know what I mean? Like it's not as if he's saying he's he's trying to suggest that this isn't how things were meant you know meant to be, guys. You know to to say this is this is an invented tradition. He's saying that so that they would know that look, this already is not uh, not ideal. You guys schismed. And we had to put one person in charge. Mm-hmm. So, so, so be careful. You know, act like a proper bishop. Be, be holy. Live this way. That's what's. That's what Jerome's talking about in that section between the ellipses here, right? That's mm-hmm. that's hidden there. So, when you remove that, it seems like he's just doubling down and saying, like, yeah, this is this this is made up. <laughs> yeah, he he's saying it wasn't what Christ originally intended perhaps, mm. but the apostles put it in place almost immediately to remedy <laughs> schism, so don't cause more schism, right? It's kind of what I think he's, uh, it's quite clear where he's going there, going uh, right. where he's going, right? And and the fact that, right, in that first quotation, in the in the, the version that Kruger and others used, right, y- you, you miss when this happened, right. right? And then again, it seems like, okay, and I've heard this, this used by, by Kruger. Actually, Kruger is not, not so strong on this. Actually, if you read his book, he isn't really doubling down on this. The other, other apologists have taken you know, his quote and his words and used him to kind of go further than he goes here, right? But he, he, it seems like this developed at some point. We don't, we don't know when. Right, sometime between Jerome, the early church, the apostles, and Jerome, in that three hundred years, this happened at some point. Well, no, you know, if you read this in context, right, in the in the Latin, it's there in the Latin. I don't know how it got lost in this translation, but you know, Jerome cites from First Corinthians one twelve to say this is when it started. Once these churches began factioning, once those who were baptized by Paul said, "No, no, no, I'm part of Paul's church. I'm part of Paul's church. I'm part of Peter's church." You know, once that happened the apostles decreed for the whole world that this is how we're governed, right? So you take out that that reference to 1 Corinthians, and it seems like Jerome just said, at some point this developed. Well, no, Jerome tells us exactly when this developed, and it's mm-hmm. during the lifetime of the apostles, right? You know, when when Paul was writing that is when is when that happened, right? So I think that's pretty that's a pretty pretty decent case for you know the the ancientness, the apostolic, the apostolicity of the monopiscopate here, right? According to Jerome, at least, right? Taking Jerome's evidence, and again, I think there are probably better sources than Jerome, but based on what Jerome is saying, it started here in apostolic times, decreed for the whole world, right? It's it's pretty. I think it's a pretty good case there in that first piece of evidence. Yeah, and and just let me say too that um, uh, what was I going to say that. Uh, uh, well, the thought left me, but I, I don't know. It just kind of blows my mind that, you know, you you found this and people just need to go look at the source and see what's been cut out by the ellipses because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so crucial. Well, so, uh, sorry, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off, Swan. Yeah, I'm well, I, I, I do have more to say, but I'm going to wait until you get to the, the letter sure. and then I'll kind of give you the final kind of cook, uh, the final cherry on top. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and just on that point there, Swan, I think you're absolutely right. Right, I think any good researcher seeing this quote, and my first instinct, and I think the instinct of many people who see this, who want to know a bit more or dig into this, is to take it and put it in Google. 
And when mm-hmm. I did that, it, do, it didn't show up from New Advent or from the Church Father's Library, which you expect it to when you plug in an early Church Father quotation, right? You get any Church Father quotation, you plug it in, it's, it's there online. This wasn't. That was because, well, first of all, there's only one English translation of this, and it's not online. It's Thomas Sheck, since it's in paperback or, or digital. And because it was a misquotation, right? And when I plugged this in, even the first sentence of this uh, quotation, all you find is this same quotation with the same ellipses, the same kind of parts of this missing, right? And I'm, 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 being, you know, I'm being charitable. I don't know where this came from or how this happened, right? I have the idea of the Reformation, those, those texts that, that Thomas Sheck suggested. But even apart from the ellipses, this is just, has just cut out information. It's, you know, it's cut out what was right in there in the text, which tells us to creed for the whole world. It tells us it began when, you know, that, that first Corinthians quotation. There wasn't a footnote in Jerome, it was there in the text in Jerome. So this quotation just cut things out. And, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that when people would use this, and Catholics have used this too and been guilty of the same thing, right? Just assu- assumed this was from that primary source, didn't dig into the primary source to find it in context, to find, you know, what it actually said. If, if that had been done, you would find this doesn't exist, Right, this is misquote. This is this is misattributed. It's a misquotation. It's, it's missing pieces, and it's truncated a whole page of information in that quote there. So, that yeah, I think you know research methods. I think is important here, right? If you see a a, a quote from a church father, the first instinct we take that and look at it in context. And doing that, mm-hmm. you'd find this doesn't exist. So, the uh, the next piece of evidence that I wanted to use um, is oh, it's fantastic. It comes from what's commonly called uh, Jerome's Letter 146, which was written to, uh, I think it's Evangelist. And here's what it said. This is just, this is just uh, highlighted here from, again, one of these patristic sources online. I think it's from New, New Advent. You know, you Google the first part of this, you'll find it in context. Read it for yourself. Uh, I'd welcome anyone to. It's pretty interesting. It says this. Uh, when subsequently one presbyter was chosen to preside over the rest, this was done to remedy schism and to prevent each individual from rendering the Church of Christ by drawing it to himself. That sounds familiar, right? For even at Alexandria, from the time of Mark the Evangelist until the episcopates of Heracles and Dionysus, I can say those names, I really can. The presbyters always named as one bishop, one of their own, chosen by themselves and set in a more exalted position, just as an army elects a general or as deacons appoint one of themselves whom they know to be diligent and call them archdeacon. Okay, I think we can probably stop there. Um, it does go on to talk about other things that, that, that I think for our point, probably not super important. Uh, the key point there, again, right, is going to be that priests, um, sorry, I'm on the wrong side here on my screen. Let me just switch here. Here we go. Again, so priests were governing in a common council. This was to prevent schism again, right? Um, and I think pretty interesting here is that it began, um, first of all, from, from the time of Mark the Evangelist, right? And as widespread as Alexandria. So the, those things that, that Jerome points out, first of all, that I think are really interesting are, are, first of all, that even at Alexandria. So Jerome is saying that even as far away as the, as the Eastern Church here in Alexandria, right, the, the known world here, Alexandria, Rome, like this is it, right? This is as far away as you can get here at this point in the early church. But even at Alexandria, this was the case, right, of one bishop being elected to govern, you know, over other bishops, 
you know, as the, as that, the, the monopiscopate, right? And from the time of Mark the Evangelist. So, tells us, right, that, that this, was, this was widespread. Uh, and again, like in the case of the, the Corinth church, right, where Jerome talks about this happened here, when, you know, when these things that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians were happening, he tells us when, when this happens, right? This from the time of Mark the Evangelist. And I think the cool thing here is that we know exactly when, this is, I think, really fun swan, we know exactly when Jerome thought that Mark was in Alexandria, right? He tells us on, in his work on illustrious men, Jerome tells us that identifies Mark as coming to Alexandria in AD 43, right? And, and Mark and identifies, Jerome identifies Mark in that work as well. So in the second work, right, on illustrious men, that Mark was the first bishop of Alexandria. So, so we, know that, we know that, according to Jerome, as far away as Alexandria, and from the time, from AD 43, from the time of Mark the Evangelist, when he came to Alexandria, I mean, from that time, or around that time. I mean, me Mark got there and it took a couple of, of years for this to be established as Mark being the, the, chief, uh, the chief bishop there. But from that time, this was the case. That from amongst the, the, the priests, amongst that common council, one priest was established. And that was done, as it was in, you know, in, in his commentary on Titus, to prevent schism, Right? Now, the one little turn of phrase that he uses there that kind of had me hung up for a minute was he talks about, you know, from the time of Mark the Evangelist until the uh, Episcopates of Heracles and Dionysus, right? This was the case, that one bishop was in charge of others, chosen by themselves, set in a position. And I thought, well, okay, what, what changed then, right? Because the, the, the pushback could be, well, maybe this, was, this is what Mark, Mark came to town and became the chief, chief bishop. And this was the case until until these two, uh, you know, these these two um, episcopates, right? Well, what changed then, right? wasn't wasn't that that this stopped, but simply that the churches expanded and appointed other bishops at that time, right? So this was the case up until that time when there was one single church and Mark was over it. There was an episcopate. Well, yeah, when when Heracles and Dionysus came along. Churches began to expand and appoint other bishops for those churches, right? There were, there were new churches being established that had their own singular bishop of those churches, right? That's what, that's what, that's what we mean in that context. And that can be, fi- that, that can be found in, in, uh, in Jerome's Chronicles, right? He gives a chronicle of when these things happen, and you see at a certain point these churches grow, and those bishops, Heracles and Dionysus, are put in charge of those churches as they grow. It isn't as if that until means, well, until then, then it stopped being the case, right? No, it was still the case, just those churches were established, and then those guys were over those churches, right? So the idea, he even shows us here that the monopiscopacy expanded in that when other churches were planted, they were right away governed by that singular bishop, whether it's Heracles or Dionysius, right? We're elected as bishops of those churches, right? So I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing here again, right, we're seeing is that this, is, this was the case. There was a development here that happened, right? Priests governed kind of in a common council to prevent schism, right? Like in, like in Corinth, right, right in the Western church, it was it was established for you know one bishop to be over the other bishops to prevent schism, and this happened 
right? In the other quotation as well, right? As, as early as, right around, as, I guess as late, we could say, as like AD 50, when Paul wrote those things, right? But Paul is, of course, writing about things that happened earlier when those factions began to develop in the Corinthian church, right? So Jerome is saying like, you know, from that time, that one bishop was in charge. Again, saying here in this letter, you know, even as far away as Alexandria, from the time of Mark the Evangelist, right, who was sent by the apostles, we can date that at, at AD 43, at, right, when Jerome believes he came there. This was the case here as well. So those two things I think are pretty important, right? So wide, widespread, right, to prevent schism happening, right, happening both in, in both of those places, right? Um, and so I think, like, I'll just, I'll, I'll put this out here, we can talk about other things. I have ideas of why this is important to go over, and I have you know other other things to mention if we get there. I don't know if we'll have time or not. Other than Jerome, that I think are also pretty important. You know, this is again just just from Jerome, and I don't think that Jerome is necessarily the best case to argue for this. This is just kind of the the rabbit hole I fell into, and I thought, well, what can we use from Jerome to defend this? I think there are actually other possibly better defenses. But again, just kind of to conclude those two quotations from Jerome, he's, he's pretty clear in both cases this began in the apostolic age. We have pretty exact dating when it began, right? AD 43, AD 50, around there, right? In, in, the, in the, very, very, the very, very ancient early church, it was response to schisms that this was established, right? So yes, it developed in response to schisms very early on. It was widespread, Right? Even, even in Alexandria, this was the case, he tells us. Right? And he tells us this was decreed for the whole world. Which, of course, if that was the case, we expect to see that happening in Alexandria. And we do. Right? We see it happening as far away as there. So I think, I think these two sources you know, from Jerome give us a pretty clear picture, Swan, of, what the, of how that monopiscopacy you know, began developed, right? Mm-hmm. Apostolic, widespread, decreed for the whole world. And I, and I think that's a pretty good case, right, as far as Rome goes, for the monopiscopacy. So... Oh my gosh, Keith, <laughs> I have so much to say, but you, you've done an excellent job. Like, seriously, what you have said is so important, because in the future, if we engage in these debates and our Protestant interlocutors, you know, or interlocutors use uh, these quotes from Jerome... One, make sure that they're citing from the right section. It's yeah, not one yeah. seven; it's one five B. And also, uh, don't cut out what's in the ellipses, yeah, right? Use, yeah, in the yeah, usual quotations, because yeah. like what's there is incredibly important. Now, another thing I wanted to—I realized what I had, what thought I had lost. I found it again. So, what I was trying to say earlier was that look, a Protestant could still say. Okay, sure, but this isn't in the canonical scriptures, right? Maybe it is a tradition that does come from the apostles. It was decreed for the whole world, but it's not in scripture, right? We we want to see this thing if it was so important in scripture, right? That's one thing you could say. Now, I think for, uh, I mean, there's several things I can say. One is that I actually do think it is in scripture, and that's the next thing I'm going to talk about. The other thing that I'm going to say is that, um, you know, for a Protestant, this puts them in kind of an awkward situation, because we do have an example here. And as I use like Clement and other examples, or mainly I use Clement to like kind of corroborate Jerome's testimony. It seems like this is a really good example of an authentic big T apostolic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what do you do with that? 
like I'm being serious because during this time in the church, there wasn't a fully formed canon. Uh, so what, you know, if you had heard as a Christian right in the or first century, supposing that Jerome is correct, that uh, the apostles had decreed for the whole world that this is how the church is supposed to be structured. You couldn't say, oh, well, that's not in scripture. <laughs> it's decreed for the whole world by the apostles and they are the leaders of the church. So that is law for you. That is how the church is supposed to be structured. And how can anyone imagine departing from that structure? Right. And so, you know, this is something to think about because uh, people talk about often like what were you like, when did Sola Scriptura become true? Well, it obviously wasn't here where the structure of the church was given by the apostles and decreed for the whole world before a canon was ever formed or fully recognized. Right. You went off of the oral tradition. You went off of what the churches were doing from their apostolic founding. Um, so, so once again, if you're going to use Jerome here, use all of Jerome, all of the relevant details. And what you find then is that this structure of the church was started in the apostolic age. It was decreed for the whole world. Um, and it was in response to schism and it was widespread, this structure, right? Yeah. That's the first thing. If you're going to use Jerome, use all of Jerome. The second thing is it does put a lot of pressure then on Protestants who reject tradition to look at, look at the square in the face and say, how is this not an example of an authentic big T apostolic tradition? And secondarily, what were you supposed to do as a Christian during the time? Uh, you couldn't just appeal to a canon. You had to go off of, this is what the apostles decreed for the whole world. So you had another authority that was binding on a universal level, the apostolic oral tradition. Um, so th those are some things there. Now, I wanted to get into scripture. And um, I, there's a book here by a Lutheran theologian and scholar, New Testament scholar that I like a lot. It's, uh, his name is Udo Schnell. He wrote this book, The First 100 Years of Christianity. He talks about on page 420 uh, the following. Let me just read it. The restructuring of the office of episcopos, or what we call bishop or overseer, that was aimed toward the gradual overcoming of the governance by presbyters, is evident in the ordination of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14. So notice what this Lutheran New Testament scholar and theologian is saying. He's saying that what Keith is saying here, what Jerome is saying is true, that yes, you did have this early kind of governance by presbyters in this kind of council setting, a senate, if you will, but then it became restructured. And he says it's restructured not 300 years after the apostles, not 200 years after the apostles, it's in 1 Timothy 4.14. And here's what he says. Indeed, the presbyters lay hands on Timothy. And according to 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy was ordained by Paul. He is ordained to be uh, episkopos of the entire community. Ordination as a spiritual and legitimating institutional act is intended to confer authority on the office holder for the purpose of preserving the tradition. Okay, so... This Lutheran scholar is saying that if you want evidence of this restructuring of the office of Episcopos, where it wasn't just a bunch of councils of presbyters, but eventually there was one bishop or there was, yeah, one bishop who was placed above the rest. Look into First Timothy. Uh, so I think that's an incredible example then of just kind of more corroboration for what Keith is saying. Now, I, I can I can take this into the context of like the debate on then the early structure of the church in Rome, 
But Keith, let me give you some space if you want to say anything. Yeah, well, I think that's fantastic. And then again, what I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, right, is I don't think actually that Jerome is the best evidence for the monopiscopacy. Mm-hmm. I kind of fell into this research and thought, well, what does Jerome say, right? I think this is very strong evidence, right? Because Jerome is pretty clear. Jerome's a great historian, right? We have him, we, we see him in other places citing earlier historians, right, to, to kind of draw his conclusions, right? In, you know, in On Illustrious Men, he talks about James being the first bishop of Jerusalem. Right. He cites second century sources, you know, verb- he quotes it verbatim, second century sources to, to prove his point, right? So he's, we know that he's familiar with older histories. So when he's, when he's saying these things, right, this is how it was, we know he's a man of history. We know he, he has sources that he is drawing and he tells us what they are sometimes like that, right? Um, uh, but I, but I think there are there are other examples even from scripture, right? You you talk about about Timothy. I think uh, you know a lot of, and this this goes into the papacy too, right? The idea of the monopiscopacy in, in, in Rome, um, so on. But there is the, of course the famous council council of Jerusalem, right? right? Where where often the criticism is, well, look, yeah, you know, if if James was was the bishop as Catholics say, why? Or sorry, no, if Peter was the Pope, as, as Catholics uh, say he was, why is James the last to speak in the Council of Jerusalem, right? This is an often a, com- a common pushback against the papacy in the early church, right? If, you know, the Council of Jerusalem, they're talking they're about letting Gentiles in, all these things. Uh, Peter talks, others talk, and then James is the last one to talk. And so the criticism often is, and you know, the, know this one, is that, well, Peter can't be the most important person there if James talks last, Right. And the, the, the Catholic, you know, response to that, which many of us have made, I think you've made yourself probably too, Swan, is that, well, no, James was the bishop of Jerusalem. So right. he spoke last because that was his, his diocese, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we know from the content of the speech that, you know, Peter's the one that has, has the vision. Peter's the one that kind of makes the decree, letting Gentiles in. All James does is kind of agree with him, right? And shares some kind of more pastoral notes, in there, mm-hmm. right? Not diminishing from Peter's power, but adding his own kind of his own flourish to it, right? Th- this to me is a is is a pretty good evidence, first of all, for the idea of, of the importance of the papacy, but also the idea of, of the the episcopacy, the monopiscopacy, right? That there was just one bishop in charge of those dioceses. Um, it was James in this case. He spoke last as the singular bishop of that diocese, but that's not an original idea. I found this uh, St. John Chrysostom in his homily 33, mm. right? Um, contemporous with, with Jerome, uh, you know, an, an early church father, makes this exact same point, right? He says that, you know, Peter speaks because Peter is bishop of Rome. Uh, James speaks last because he was, he was the singular bishop of Jerusalem who spoke last um, and doesn't add anything, but just kind of gives some pastoral advice, draws in some prophecies, helps everyone kind of feel good about this, and then they go off on their mm-hmm. way. Doesn't make the decree. So I think that's already a pretty strong piece of evidence from Scripture of there being this arrangement at that time of, of not a plurality of bishops, but of one bishop. This is why James kind of rules last, because he's the singular bishop, right, of that of that diocese. So he gets to speak last of his diocese. Um, but Chrysostom mentions like this isn't this is a decree for the whole world, so mm-hmm. he's not the one right. to to rule on that because he only has authority over his right. He has authority 
singular over his over his diocese. Mm-hmm. So so even the early church fathers interpreting interpreting scripture right at a pretty early time are others like you know, Chrysostom is is seeing the monopiscopacy uh, in you know revealed in the scripture. Like this is why it happened mm-hmm. because James was the single bishop of there, right? Cuz mm-hmm. so I think that's pretty interesting and that's again not an argument that we're reinventing as catholic as catholics you know that that comes from antiquity. This comes from mm-hmm. Chrysostom. He he already saw this, you know, w- way back then, right? Mm-hmm. And let me let me just add to that when we talk about um well, the first the monopiscopacy, Jerusalem is probably our best early canonical example, canonical in the sense of in the in the text of the New Testament. Uh, there are some others that are proposed, but Jerome, excuse me, the Jerusalem is probably the best. Uh, so Richard Balcom in his book on Jude and the relatives of Jesus in the early church, he mentions that basically this is probably the closest that you're going to get to a monarchical structure explicitly in the new Testament. Although, you know, Balcom is careful not to totally commit himself that, Oh, this is a mana episcopate, but he's saying this is the closest example that we have. And then BH Streeter uh, in his book on, I believe the primitive church, BH Streeter himself also says, <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to call this, but a mana episcopal structure, you know, in the early Jerusalem church. And so, uh, you know, and then in the second century, you have the lists of the early bishops of Jerusalem. Uh, now, there was something I wanted to add, and it's going to get us now into the structure of the early church of Rome. So somebody might ask, well, Keith, you just admitted that there was maybe this structure where in the early church of multiple bishops in a single place. So then how can you talk about the first bishop? How can you refer to Timothy as the first bishop of Ephesus as the tradition does? And I think the first bishop, the, the thing that makes him first is when were they promoted as this president or this head of all the other bishops? That's what it means to be the first bishop. It doesn't mean the first bishop and that nobody else was having that title episcopos. But it means, for example, when you look at the later mana episcopacy, where did that line, that lineage come from? Who started it? And it started when one man was placed on the top of the others uh, in this structure of the governance of the church. And so then that's how you get this language of the first bishop, right? Because Timothy, I think, was the one who started that lineage, at least in the church of Ephesus, of the monoepiscopacy, when you had this one bishop placed above the rest. And now going to the structure of the church in Rome, when you read that there are multiple bishops in a place, episcopoi, right? That doesn't mean that there isn't a hierarchy, it just means that you have multiple men there who are bishops. And a lot of Protestants have read like things like the Shepherd of Hermas. And they've said, oh, look, multiple bishops. There's not just one bishop. Ergo, the monopiscopacy is false. And what we've been saying as Catholics is, well, yeah, you can have, let's say, multiple men who have the title bishop in a single place as overseer. Um, but at what point did it, let's say, become bishop as we know it? At what point did you have, let's say, that hierarchy, you know, begin? And so if we see in a source multiple people with the title bishop, you could assume that they're just all egalitarian, equal, and they just form a council or a senate. Or as the Catholics, as we've been saying, there was a hierarchy, an implicit hierarchy. And now we have the explicit evidence that there was a hierarchy among the bishops. And so the early bishops of Rome were more like, more than likely, given all the other sources that we've given. Oh, and given the fact, I want to say this about the Jerusalem church. If you want an example of something that was decreed for the whole world, I mean, there is an example in the new Testament. And so this whole idea of things being decreed for the whole world by the apostles after Christ, 
we have that that fits with the uh, testimony that we have of the early church. So the early bishops of Rome were maybe these men who were elevated above the other bishops and were placed in charge. And it wasn't the case then that it was just a collegial government, uh, you know, uh, of like just a Senate or just a federation where everybody's kind of basically equal. There was a hierarchy there. Um, And so then this is where perhaps the Roman monoepiscopacy started. And it should also be noted that it's no accident that Timothy becomes the head of the college of bishops in his local diocese because he was close with the apostle Paul. And then when we look at the early sources, uh, like for example, Jerome or even Irenaeus, you know, Linus was committed to the office of the episcopacy by Peter and Paul. Okay. So if you have Peter and Paul making you a bishop and you're trying to then find out who's going to be the head of our college of bishops in this local diocese. Oh, well Linus, because Peter and Paul chose him. And then when you need to find another successor, oh, well, Clement was ordained by Peter. And so that would give him a distinct authority. You see, you can start creating then a distinct kind of, let's say, prestige for a certain group of individuals who would be then natural choices to make them the head bishop of your diocese. Um, And of course, I'll just say this on a last note. I mean, um, well, maybe two things. So the, the first then is going back to when I talked about the language of the first bishop we're not trying to say that nobody else had the title of Episcopos, right? In the early church, uh, that only one guy could have had it, but we're saying, when did it begin, uh, that the word that, you know, that the, when we say the first Bishop, we mean the first Bishop as we understand that word Bishop where one is above the others. Right. I, I think that's a clarification because we can, because it's still true. And it makes total sense that you can have multiple men who have that title bishop, but one's the head of them. Just as, now this is my second point, in our church today, you could have in a single diocese multiple bishops, but there's one who's the diocesan bishop. You can have lower auxiliary bishops, but there's one who is the head bishop of that diocese. So all of this is to say that, you know, I don't think it's tenable anymore to argue, oh, the the Roman church was just egalitarian and governed by this college or, you know, uh, collegial uh, set of presbyters. No, I think which you're missing then the hierarchy. Right. And I'm sorry, I'm I'm too excited. But one last thing, one (laughs) last thing, I promise, I promise. Um, In his in uh, uh, I think it's Richard Berticell's book from synagogue to church. He talks about how, you know, in Josephus, when Josephus talks about the synagogue, he only refers to one. I think are a few classes of individuals, but the main one is the nobles who are kind of running the synagogue. Now, Berticell makes a point. If you just read Josephus, you would think, oh, well, it was governed in this collegial way by the nobles. But then we learn from the New Testament that there was one person presumably among the nobles in the synagogue, who was known as the synagogue ruler. And so, in other words, what Berticell is saying is that sometimes when things are referred to in the collective, you could miss the hierarchy that's there. Just as if I talk about the senators, right, in the United States, uh, Congress, that could be leaving out details about, like, the Senate majority leader, right, of people who do have authority within that collective. And so that hierarchy could be masked. And I think... This basically vindicates what we've been saying as Catholics. Uh, we, at this point, what we've done against kind of these objections to there not being a monoepiscopate in Rome is we kind of proposed, oh, well, maybe there, there's this alternative here, right? And uh, I tried to propose Timothy as a counterexample. But now I think, Keith, you've given us the crowning jewel to finish the argument.
Yeah, I mean, and again, I think there are there are lots of other sources we can go to, right? There are, I mean, when there are lists of bishops that that say Irenaeus will list in the early church, he's listing one bishop, he's bishop to bishop to bishop, right? He's not listing the plurality of oh, all these bishops were here and then these ones were here. There's, you know, there's when other early church writers are writing about being bishops, it's bishop of this city. It's not one of the bishops or a bishop. It's, it's the bishop of this city, right? So there are lots of evidence we we can draw. In there, but I and right, which is why I say that I don't think Jerome necessarily is, is the best. But this is still good evidence, right? This mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. I think, really important evidence. Uh, and if we're not going to take Jerome at his word, we have to grapple with, you know, what does this mean? Did, is he basing this information on, you know, on misinformation? Is he mis? Is he reading back into history what he's seeing now in his time? Right? You, you. There are ways you can grapple with this evidence and and try and. It, it dispute it. Maybe he was he was wrong on this, but he's pretty clear in what he believes, right? For mm-hmm. for his part, and he's pretty early on in church history. He believes this is from the apostolic time. He tells us when it began, you know, pretty close dating, right? He he quotes scripture in the first case in the in commentary on Titus. He quotes scripture to say, look, this happened when Paul wrote this, right? He's linking mm-hmm. that right to the time of the apostles to say. They, you know, it began this way, but then th- this is quickly how what the tradition became decreed for the whole world, decreed by, by who, right? By the apostles, by those in authority, mm-hmm. and as widespread as at Alexandria. So this, for me, is is pretty compelling evidence, and I'm really happy to bring this to your channel and, and bring this to a wider audience, Swan, bring this to you to share. And I'm also pretty happy to put to bed that first misquotation uh, from from Jerome and his commentary to Titus because it's simply it's simply fictitious. There's 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 too many parts missing from there that are kind of <laughs> taken out. Right. It's truncated. It's it's misattributed. If you look at what. Titus one seven. There's nothing at all to do with that in there, right? It's just simply miss. It's not as if people just aren't citing it properly. They're using a quote that does not exist in the text. It's just been yeah. it's just been made up, right? And it's removed the parts that of that of that text that tell us when this happened and how widespread it was, right? So I think this is. Um, I'm curious to hear how people would wrestle with this, how they would how they would address this. But in my mind, this is pretty compelling evidence that Jerome thought that this was a development that happened almost immediately in apostolic time, decreed for the whole world to prevent schism. So mm. I think it's a pretty a pretty compelling case to go with all the other evidence I think you presented and that we have that exists there. From, as you say, even scripture itself, there's, mm. there's definitely evidence that, that, that you and I and others have found you know, even in antiquity, you know, Chrysostom finds the same thing that this yeah. a monopi- monopiscopacy existed even within the context of Scripture, and we can see it. And they saw it, right? Jerome, Chrysostom saw it back then, and and others as well, even even earlier. I would argue too. Yeah, and let me just say one last thing, which is concerning uh, the list of bishops, because you you talk about how it is, you know, Irenaeus lists them as you know, the Bishop of Rome, right. And he, he gives the lists or, you know, other lists are developed by Hegesippus in 20 years earlier. Um, one common argument I've heard from kind of scholars of early Christianity is that these lists are Greek in nature. And they mean it like Greek in the sense of like philosophical schools where you would have, like you would describe basically just a, 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 to show, for example, like in the old Testament, when it talks about the succession of prophets, 
is not just like one replaced the other and then the next one came. It's just like, oh, well, there was a consistent stream. They could be contemporaneous, right? And that, that's not a concern. That's not a worry. Um, where, it, But that would be a problem, at least to some extent, it would seem for us as Catholics, because we would want or expect rather one and then the other and then the other, given like what we believe about the monopiscopacy and, and all that. But given what you just said and what we've discussed here on today's episode about how you could have something like the monopiscopacy very early, like during the time of the apostles already in action. Um, I think that's going to make us have to relook at the whole hypothesis because uh, the hypothesis that it's just kind of like a Greek philosophical school and not necessarily meant to imply ordinal succession, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, because it's not just it, 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 given what you've said, it, it really could be now one after the other, what Jerome is doing and excuse me, what Irenaeus is doing and others is they're showing the stream of these presidents one after the other, who were the head of the bishops in that area. And that would then be a kind of mana Episcopal list. Now it could be like a Greek philosophical school and that you're just trying to show that the, the, the word, the gospel was consistently preached or, you know, in, in Greek uh, philosophical lists, they would have like the list of the heads of the teachers of a school after Aristotle, after Plato. Sure. But that's also compatible with there being one after the other. And when you put all the evidence together, I think that's what's going on. You do have a list that is properly speaking, a mana Episcopal list. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd also add that, you know, Jerome in On Illustrious Men and in Carnicle, right, where he's chronicling history of these people and, and time, he does say, in Alexander, for example, he talks about, right, Heracles uh, appointed Dionysus as bishop after him to succeed him, right? So mm-hmm. it's that laying on a hands that we see in Scripture, right, with, with, with Timothy, for example, of appointing that next bishop to, to succeed you, right? So I think that's even further evidence that, I don't know, at least Jerome believed that was the case, right? Again, maybe Jerome's totally wrong on all these things, but at least mm-hmm. Jerome believed that this is how it was done, that this was passed on in succession, like how, what we see happening with, with Timothy being kind of appointed bishop there, right? So, mm. yeah. Well, Keith, it was great having you on the channel. I mean, you really knocked it out of the park, and this is so, <laughs> so crucial uh, because if you're going to use Jerome, <laughs> yeah. use all Jerome. Yeah. And then when you start wrestling with, we have early, and as I've also kind of contributed uh, together, we have good evidence for trusting Jerome's testimony here from scripture and from other independent sources. What are you going to do as a Protestant? Uh, if, if we have an example up here, an authentic apostolic tradition, and what are you going to do if you were a Christian in the early church, you didn't have a canon fully formed, uh, are you just going to use sola scriptura or are you going to go with the oral tradition of the apostles on this universal level that they decreed it for the whole world? I mean, and then, and then this changes the debate on the structure <laughs> of the early church in Rome. Yeah. You, you can't use that argument anymore and say there wasn't like something like a mana episcopacy in the early church of Rome, given what we have here. So man, Keith, this is like the one piece <laughs> that once you put it in, everything else falls together. I think it's just so wonderful that as Catholics, we're kind of taught, to be, you know, people from the outside tell us to be skeptical of our traditions. Oh, wow, it's so, you know, crazy and fantastical that this was the structure of the early church and that's what you think it is. And then you find out the traditions indicated. The yeah. tradition was reliable. Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience throughout life, that something that I thought was, oh, that's just a tradition. And then you find out later, oh, no, that was right. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's explicitly, it's explicitly 
gosh, stated by Jerome that this is decreed for the whole world. It began here, right? That's pretty, that's pretty substantial. It's a pretty big claim. Like you say, in terms of that oral tradition, that big T tradition, right? He's mm-hmm. pretty, he's pretty uh, sure of himself that this began here and was decreed. Like that's, so there is a tradition that we'd hold to as Catholics, and, the, and there's the origin, right? And the other thing that I think for me, you know, and you're a convert too to the Catholic faith, Swan, for me, this is the thing that, that, would make me a, and pause and stop and go, okay, so where, if we see this in the very early church, almost immediately, right, contemporary mm-hmm. with things we're finding in Scripture, contemporary with what Paul's writing in Corinthians, where did that go? Like, where's mm-hmm. my bishop? And I think of St. Francis de Sales, writing at the time of the Reformation, right, Bishop of Geneva in exile, writing to the Reformers, saying, well, who gave you the authority to begin this church? And where's your where's your bishop? How can you hang your shingle there and, and begin a new church, right? That same question Right, if we can trace the monopiscopacy back to the very, very early church, well, what happened to make that not be the model of, of the church anymore? When did when did that model when was it okay to abandon that model, right? Mm-hmm. If if the apostles began that, right? So that that for me is the question. And the other question is, okay, if we're gonna take Jerome if we're going to, because this is this is a, a common thing that the Protestant apologists will do to defend sola scriptura, and and the Bible, the smaller version of the Protestant Bible, they'll take Jerome, right, who criticizes books of the Deuterocanon and and suggests to me they shouldn't be in Scripture. He still translates them and so includes them in the Bible that's read then for many 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 years by mm-hmm. all of Christianity up till up till quite quite recently, a few hundred years ago, right when that began to be truncated from the Bible. But if you're going to take Jerome on something like which books belong in the Bible and say, oh, look, our, we have the actual Bible because even Jerome criticized mm-hmm. Maccabees and, and parts of the Deuterocanon, right? Well, you have to also weigh then Jerome's, you know, what he says about the early church governance structure, right? right. You can't kind of pick and choose those things. You can't rely on, well, oh yeah, Jerome was right on the Bible, that's why ours are smaller than Catholics. But uh, he was wrong on what the, on what the uh, early church looked like, right? Mm. That's a that's a tricky business to begin to get into right, when you're picking and choosing those kind of things. So, you know, for me, that's why this the, this kind of research really hits home, right? Because it kind of it it gives us a very clear look at the landscape with all the other evidence we have gathered in there of what the early church governance structure looked like. And as a Protestant, I'd go well. I don't have that in my church. Why did that stop? And when did it happen? And and why? And ask those questions, right? That for me is like, yeah, do that. <laughs> do that work. Ask those questions, right? All right. Well, Keith, I think that's the end for today's stream. But once again, thank you so much. This has been a long time in the making. And so I'm happy that we finally have the time to do it. And also God bless you and your family as you welcome a uh, fourth child, right? <laughs> fourth Soon. child, yep. All right. Thanks, Juan. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate uh, being on here and all your work. It's it's fabulous. So happy to share with you uh, what I've my small contribution to this kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And thank you for all the uh, people who have watched today. Uh, Thank you for everything. And with that, we'll end the episode. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Cordial Cathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.